This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Craig is married. Hello, everyone. <laughs> Welcome to Overdue. This is a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name's Andrew. And we're back. A dinosaur story. <laughs> Craig got married two days ago. That's true. Because it's 1130 on a Monday. Yeah. This, we, this, if you're listening to this on Monday the 11th, know that this episode is hot off the presses. Yeah. Hot and fresh just for you. Uh-huh. We it's like, it. have you ever seen a Krispy Kreme when they're like cook, cooking the donuts in there and they have the neon sign turned on so you know you can go in there and get a fresh donut? Mm, fresh donuts. That's a very like Midwest specific reference, I think. <laughs> I knew friends in high school who would take early morning trips to the Krispy Kreme factory in Delaware. Really? So that they could get Krispy Kremes. Even though I think we had a Krispy Kreme in our town. <laughs> it's just, can we make it up like an excuse to go on a road trip at five in the morning and be late to school? Sounds great, everyone. Good job. I think. Yeah, I think I've got to think that most of Krispy Kreme's business is done like in the wee hours when like high people come in to eat the fresh donuts. <laughs> I don't think those donuts, controversial opinion, I think there are better donuts than Krispy Kreme. Yeah, I mean, do, what donuts do do you think? Like did bespoke donuts, like the ones you get at Federal Donuts, are good? Or are yeah. you talking like chain donuts? Like, what's the better chain donut? Because I prefer Krispy Kreme to Dunkin' Donuts. Oh, interesting. Which I think come off the presses, tasting like they're about eight hours old. Yeah, they might not even use presses. Someone might just be pressing them together with their hands at Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> And the heat of their clammy hands is what cooks the donut. What are even the other donut chains? Tim Hortons, I guess. That's mostly coffee. If they have donuts, that's like they, a no. Mistake. They do like the. They're called Timbits. That's oh. their branded <laughs> name for donut holes. Didn't you know that? That sounds like a thing an uncle would say to make someone uncomfortable. Tim hey, how you, how's your Timbits? Stop! No, we gotta start. Hey Tim. Hey Timmy, how's your Timbits? <laughs> no. Pull my finger. <laughs> We are certainly burying the lead. I got married. It was great. Uh, that's I don't know what else to say on the <laughs> it went, show. It went off without a hitch. They got hitched without a hitch. Andrew did a great job um, being my best man. Job. Yeah, I was he the, did best the best man. Yeah, he did the best job. Uh, and all of our listeners who follow us on social media have been really supportive of this whole process. And Andrew put out a cool photo of us. Uh, not me and my wife, just me and Andrew. <laughs> no, well, my wife took it, so okay. she's like, our wives are involved. <laughs> uh, but it's been really fun, and it's also been kind of cool just to see our audience kind of supporting us in the things we do outside the podcast, like get married and grow yeah. up and be adults. Yeah. Um, and it's my understanding that we might be talking about marriage in this week's episode, Andrew. Mm-hmm. Uh, what book are we talking about? Okay, I read uh, Mr. Peanut by Adam Ross, which was published in 2010. Um, it's not like a Patreon recommendation or anything. I was in uh, the City Lights bookstore in uh, San Francisco, I think it was like last June, 
Mm-hmm. Um, I bought 1984 on the same trip at the same okay, store. Okay, cool. But um, yeah, it was like one of those, you know, when you go into those bookstores, sometimes they'll have like staff picks. Oh, do you remember the staff uh-huh. person's name? I don't remember the staff person's name, but I know that it was a staff pick and I opened it and I read like the first sentence and it was grabby. And I'll just read that to you real quick now before we get into like standard author talk and stuff. Okay. Um, when David Pepin first dreamed of killing his wife, he didn't kill her himself. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> he dreamed ink. He dreamed convenient acts of God. <laughs> okay. Um, Lil's dark at there. A, at a picnic on the beach, a storm front moved in. David and Alice collected their chairs, blankets, and booze. And when the lightning flashed, David imagined his wife lit up, her skeleton distinctly visible as in a children's cartoon. Oh, man. So it's like, it's dark, but it's pretty, like, it's pretty grabby. Yeah, that's pretty grabby. Thanks, Elaine or Jeremy or whoever recommended that book to Andrew through the staff pick section. We'll say Jeremy. Okay, Jeremy. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you, Jeremy. Uh, So this is Adam Ross's debut novel, right, Andrew? Yes, that is right. Yeah, I think he has another short story collection called Ladies and Gentlemen. Which was published in 2011, and then since then I don't think he's had anything, or at least no like novels published nothing i could find yeah uh i was kind of interested to find that he what you know he went to vassar and hollands and washington university um got his ma's and mfa and then moved down to nashville in like 95 and i was surprised to find that he didn't then turn out a novel until like 15 years later Mm -hmm. Uh, he was writing for like an alt weekly and he's done some teaching um and a whole bunch of other work his wife's a lawyer i think uh, so she went to school and I, I bring this up because in on his website, which is a great place to go when we're talking about contemporary authors, we talked about this before, mm-hmm. uh, he was talking about this book and uh, what took him so long to write because apparently he got the idea when his dad told him a story about his cousin like purposefully eating a handful of peanuts and going into anaphylactic shock cool uh and he was like really freaked out by that and like what that might have said about her life and then he started writing the book and it clearly became an exploration of marriage in some way that i'm sure we'll find out yeah we'll talk that's thematically important Uh, Um, it's it's interesting that um you're talking about you know he's a short story writer and it's 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 interesting that it took him so long to form a novel out mm -hmm. of it and i can like this book does seem a lot of the time like a collection of shorter stories. Uh-huh. And sometimes they hang together okay and sometimes they don't. Sure. But yeah, like structurally I can definitely see that he's coming from a place where maybe he's he's used to writing shorter stuff. And he also said that at that point in time uh he was still pretty young like he uh he and his wife were married 15 years before they had kids. Uh, they met when they were 19 and 24. So I think the parts of this book uh, that relate to people living together uh, for substantial portions of their lives um, had not really taken place for him yet. So he kind of waited until he had some more life experience uh, to fill in that part of this book, which mm-hmm. I think seems pretty responsible of him. I don't I suppose. know. Like, I kind of am worried about him if that's the... <laughs> Like if his life experience helped color in this book. <laughs> fair, okay, fair enough. Uh, the other things that I know about, I know that he was a state champion wrestler in New York 
in the New York high school system in 19, you know, in the nineties. I was also relieved to find that I couldn't find out much about him and his wrestling career. So that makes me feel pretty comfortable about things that I did in the nineties kind of being consigned to oblivion. Sure. Nobody will ever know. I don't know what I did and neither (laughs) do you. (laughs) Uh, Anything else about his background? I know there's a lot of references to other stuff in this book that I feel like we maybe don't want to dive into until you kind of set up what starts to take place. Yeah, and honestly, I don't know. Like, we could spend a lot of time on them, but honestly, I don't know if I'm, like, super qualified to comment on how his, like, fandom... Excuse me, I still have wedding voice. (laughs) (laughs) About how his fandom of, uh, like, Alfred Hitchcock and um, Escher, like, okay. thematically inform this book, because they definitely do. Yes. But, like, I don't, I'm not, like, familiar enough with the, the works of either of those two people to really do a great job of talking about it. Yeah, the most, so, yeah. yeah, it's like M.C. Escher, Alfred Hitchcock, uh, Dr. Sam Shepard, who's the guy... Um, who was later exonerated from killing his wife, who they based The Fugitive, both the TV show and the film, on. Um, and then video games? Like, those are the four things I think this book's about, from based on saying, what I, I read. Video games with a question mark is, like, super <laughs> appropriate. So um, let's spend a little bit of time on the plot and structure, and then we'll get into just, like, my gut level sure reaction let's get into your gut book, wait like, do you have I a peanut it. allergy do you have a mr peanut allergy i do not have a peanut allergy um okay. we'll talk like let's like up front let's talk about the name of the book sure um so alice okay um so david we learn like he fantasizes about killing his wife which we learn right up front um and they have been married for about 13 years and it's had its ups and downs, but it seems to mostly have been downs lately. Okay. Um, she had at some point in there um, three miscarriages mm. and as kind of an indirect result of that got um, like depressed and gained a bunch of weight. And yeah, they just, they, they are not always super happy with each other cause they like stopped trying to have a baby and now they're just in a kind of like a stasis where nothing's really moving in any particular direction. Okay. And um, as it happens, David is also working on a novel, like a book within a book, in which he writes extensively about these like wife-killing fantasies of his. So uh, it makes sense that when Alice is found dead, <laughs> uh, David is pretty high up on a list of suspects. Okay. How Some is she found one. dead? Um, so she ingested peanuts, and she's allergic to peanuts, and she okay. died of peanuts. Great. Death by peanuts. Death by peanut. That's not, that's like not, a f- is it treated with any sort of humor in the book? Because that would be maybe inappropriate. I don't the know. The book doesn't, I mean, the book sometimes will crack a dry joke, but is not, it does not treat a whole lot of stuff with humor. No. Okay. Um. So that happens. Um, there are two detectives investigating this case, a detective Hastral and detective Shepard. Mm-hmm. Who uh, both have their own problematic histories with with their marriages. Um, Hastral has this wife named Hannah, who um, took to bed like five months ago and just hasn't gotten out of bed since then. Oh wow! And um, and Shepard is based on and in fact is like implied to actually be 
the real life person <laughs> Sam Shepard, who you mentioned earlier, okay, who in um who in like a 1950s media circus trial, yes, where papers were writing these sensationalistic headlines and the jury was not like sequestered from the public. He was convicted of killing his wife Marilyn and was imprisoned for like 10 years of a uh-huh. life sentence only to have that verdict overturned a decade later um with like actual due process having been like observed. <laughs> yes, can I ask like two quick questions about that? Yeah, him. When does this book take place? Okay, that's that's interesting. That's an interesting <laughs> question. The book is there's there's this, just this kind of like floaty dreamy quality to these sections of the book and it's definitely I don't think it's it's weird. It's stretchy, right? So so Shepard is in this book as a detective investigating this case. And he's like in his 40s maybe? I it's something like that. Okay, cuz he's not cool. he's not like an ancient elderly man. So okay, so the David and Alice parts of the book are clearly taking place in now times because there's like video games and the internet and stuff like it's it's at least like the 2000s well when did al gore invent the internet because space war is the first video game and that was like in the 50s Mm -hmm. and so this i don't know when al gore invented the internet this could take place like back when Shepard was alive unless there were cell phones well okay no it couldn't i don't think (laughs) Because he's like getting on travel sites and booking stuff. Like Al Gore, when Al Gore invented <laughs> okay. the internet, I don't okay. think that William Shatner was right there being like, you know what? You know what would be really great is if people could name their own prices on flights and hotels. <laughs> you got me. He was too busy being Captain Kirk. He was not the negotiator yet. Okay. Um, but so, the, so it's like all the over sh- the place. The Shepherd part of the book, which like takes the real life thing – and like expands Shepard and his wife Marilyn into like fully realized characters and even puts forth like a an in book explanation for what actually happened. Whoa. Takes place at the time it was supposed to have taken taken place. So like the fifties. Weird. And like so Shep like real life Shepard died in nineteen seventy. He got out of prison. He had a short run for some reason as like a a wrestler? Right. Yes, he was the he was the killer, Sam Shepard, and the real Sam Shepard was an actual doctor. So his whole like hook was that he was a doctor who knew enough about your body to cause pain. And his <laughs> his finishing move was the mandible claw, uh, which I knew because of the the wrestler Mankind, aka Mick Foley, aka right, I believe he I believe he popularized yes, the move, <laughs> aka Dude Love. Um, he had a bunch of different names. Mick Foley did. But, yeah, you just shove your fingers under someone's tongue and, like, squeeze real hard. But it's like professional wrestling, so it's not real. I except like it that's, is. that's also, like, in direct opposition to the Hippocratic Oath. Yeah. <laughs> Do no harm. Except when you're if a wrestler. You just had, a, like, a belt that said in gold letters, like, first do harm. <laughs> uh, it's really tiny, like... Side note about Sam Shepard's case that I found fascinating, having just watched all that OJ stuff on TV. Yeah, right. Um, F. Lee Bailey, who was on OJ's team and helped get him off, uh, actually was the one who took uh, Shepard's case to the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court, Mm -hmm. which overturned the murder conviction. Uh, based primarily on the media circus that yep. prevented him from getting a fair trial, which I find ironic given the O.J. Simpson case. Yeah, <laughs> just just saying. Yeah, but uh, there are there are um, parallels drawn between the O.J. case and this case sometimes because okay. the O.J. case is 
it's like a modern media circus. Mm-hmm. But this one is like one of the earlier examples of that whole that whole form of like being tried in the public, the court of public opinion, like whether he did it or not. And yeah, and it sounds like the prosecution's case wasn't great, but maybe his the defense case, also wasn't no. great. I like don't know. They, they could not, um, they didn't have a murder weapon. Yep. Which the defense just did not really exploit. I mean, when they appealed it, they exploited the hell out of it. Like yeah, they said, <laughs> you know, you basically invented maybe a murder weapon based on nothing. And that's not like that's not how this works. Good lawyer. I don't know. Yeah. Like, I don't know if we could do like a prequel serial series about like the Shepherd case or something. That would be awesome. Yeah. Um, Take my idea. NPR. Have fun. NPR is not responsible for serial. That's a common misconception. This American life and serial don't are not made by NPR. Interesting. Tell me more about this book so I can stop being wrong. Okay. Good luck. <laughs> uh, what else? So the, yeah, the shepherd thing is is like the timeline just makes no sense at all because it is said like explicitly to be like in the 1950s, and yet here we are in the present with with the internet. Cool. So either like the universe that this book takes place in had the internet way before we actually had it, or he's just playing loosey goosey, or it's like sort of. MC Escher ish with timelines, maybe on purpose. Maybe on purpose. Oh boy. Okay. Tell me um, more about this like murder though with the peanuts and the detectives. So the and then and then the book so like the middle third ish of the book is just the shepherd stuff. Oh wow. Okay. And it's interspersed with like these these modern day scenes of detect now detective shepherd. Who and it's not really explained like how he's a detective now, whatever. <laughs> um talking to this little weird guy named mobius okay. like a, define a little weird guy like are we talking a, about the alien a, from ladder flintstone no, he's like, just this we... he's no he's not the great gazoo he's a small man <laughs> who is like a contract killer and if you like if you want out of your marriage in a very permanent way you'd call him and you set events into motion. Okay, so he's a tiny Mike from Breaking Bad. He's right. a cleaner. Okay. He's a, yeah, he's a cleaner. He gets stuff done. Except I think Mike from Breaking Bad's a better character. Um, <laughs> so yeah, and then Mobius is like talking to Shepard and is like, well, I'll tell you what the deal with David Pepin is if you tell me what really happened when your wife got murdered. And then it's just like this whole diversion into the Shepard case. With like interspersed with these little scenes of Mobius and Shepard talking to each other, and and Shepard is like, "Okay, I told you my deal. Now tell me your deal." And Mobius wants the manuscript of the book that Pepin wrote, and he'll like tell Shepard what's right and what's wrong. But then he kills himself by like eating a bunch of pages of the book until he blocks his windpipe and like kills himself. Mobius, yeah cool yeah and then like so there's a bunch of like flashback stuff at the end and like the whole end of the book is Pepin and Mobius like Pepin's trying to protect Alice because he's changed his mind about wanting her dead and Alice is like depressed and it it becomes unclear whether we're in like real life or in the book that David is writing I was gonna say wait I thought she was dead She's not. Yeah, dead? no, it's it's jumping back and forth in time. Okay, okay, yeah, yeah no, take Ooh. take a take a breath. 
Um, yeah, but like she's, I she's dead. It's heavily implied that David was involved either directly or indirectly. Like maybe she died because Mobius like broke into their house and took all of her depression medication, and that's why she is so sad all the time. But why would Mobius do that? Because like David called Mobius in the first place to like, oh just snap, to, just oh, to find snap. her, like arguably. But then he like, I don't know. I think he says too much about like his killing her fantasies, and I don't. It's weird. It's a weird thing. Okay. Um, so that's like basically the structure of the book. It is. It's very loosey goosey with like time and reality and like. So the the Hastral story, which is I think I think is the shortest of like the three stories in this book. And um, who's that his, guy? Where again? His, I'm sorry. Where his, he's one of the detectives. His wife Hannah is in bed and oh, oh yes, yes, yes. And that that story has the same problem that I have with um, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, which is how these people go to the bathroom. <laughs> like I feel like you got to address that problem. Wait, why? How does that factor in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? Like those, his grandparents are in bed for twenty years, and it's like they never get up, and they don't talk. It like are bedpans just implied, and they never talk about it, or like what's there's the... just a there's just a funnel in the mattress that goes right to the septic tank. Oh no, that's no good. <laughs> that has to be how it works. I feel like you just need to. I don't know, like those seasons of twenty four. Like, why does Jack never go to the bathroom? I feel like it, the sort of thing like takes me out of the story you really need to address it yeah the, just to please you and your need for veracity and verisimilitude yeah exactly um speaking of taking a break to go to the potty let's take a break real quick and talk about people supporting the show this week hey there what? guy Oh, what? Hi. I bet that you me? would... Yes, you, right there in front of... Stop what you're doing and listen to me. Okay. I have a message to tell you about the fine folks at Squarespace. What they, is it? No, what is it? They're folks. And they what is the a, message I meant? Oh, the message is, <laughs> if you want to make a website, you can't do any better than going to squarespace.com because uh, they will help you make a site that looks professionally designed, regardless of your skill level, which I can tell is zero, and there's no coding required. I just met you on the street. That's how I know. I can tell by your hat. Well, that's not. It's not supposed to be a passive aggressive thing. Where like, oh well, you can't do any better than Squarespace. <laughs> like nobody can do any better than Squarespace. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Uh, because they have intuitive and easy to use tools. That even if you're an expert, you'll find some cool stuff to do with them. But even if you're a novice, you'll make a website that'll look good. Uh, and if you get you, if you sign up for a year, you'll get a free domain, and you can make that almost whatever you want, as long as it's not taken. Right. So yeah, our 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 website overduepodcast.com is built on Squarespace, and it's super easy to update. You can make it look like pretty much whatever you want, just by like dragging stuff around. You don't need to know any code. Um, Craig, if people want to uh, sign up for a free trial today, what should they do? Today, they should go to squarespace.com, and when they do decide to sign up, like I think they get a trial period or something. But Yeah, you do get a trial. When you decide to sign up, make sure to use the offer code OVERDUE, and you'll get 10% off your first purchase. Thanks to Squarespace for supporting our show, and thanks to you for using Squarespace. The listener, you. Squarespace. 
you. <laughs> So we talked about the structure of the book, mm-hmm. Andrew. Mm-hmm. Does it is it really is it time to dive into your hopes and dreams and thoughts and feelings, your gut reactions, the peanuts rolling around in your belly? <laughs> I got some peanuts. I gotta get out of there. Okay, so I was reading some reviews of this book. To help process you know, your it's, own feelings. It's, yeah, because it's like a modern book and there's not like scholarship on it or anything. So I was just like, I was reading through to see what other people thought because I, th- I find that helpful in trying to like get my own thoughts together, especially like right after I'm done reading something. Similar service that we try to provide for folks. I know, right? Um, and there was this passage of a uh, review in The New Yorker by Daniel Mendelson. Okay. Um, that that gets to what I think my core problem with the book is so this is going to be an extended excerpt from that article okay um the problem is that the shepherd material is so strong that everything else in the book seems contrived at once overwrought and vacant not least because david and alice are themselves curiously substanceless characters into whom dissatisfactions have been poured a lengthy flashback set in hawaii which provides the key to alice's manic overeating and culminates in a game-like combat of wills during a hiking trip leaves you with the glazed-eyed lassitude you get after playing too many rounds on the Xbox 360. I was surprised to read that Ross was inspired to write his book after hearing a story about a fat relative who died after eating a handful of peanuts. The finished novel had me thinking that he had always wanted to write about the Shepherd case and had finally arrived at the right moment to do it. And then, not trusting the strength of his story, gussied it up with fashionable stylistic gimmicks. These grow tiring in the end, not least because the debutante author too often rushes in to show how it all works, to explain his themes by connecting the dots for you. Um, The anxiousness reaches a climax that coincides with that of the novel itself. During a final awkwardly emphatic flashback to David and Alice's first meeting in a college class about marriage in Hitchcock, and this in parentheses, get it? (laughs) Oh, no. There's a transcription of the professor's opening lecture that not only needlessly restates familiar themes, uh, can marriage save your life, or is it just the beginning of a long double homicide, but also explains how the parts of the novel link up. That's a quote from the book, I think. Okay. Uh, So when David looked back, this time in their lives was itself a montage, images from these films and the Shepard murder cross-cut with his memories of Alice and of falling in love, and he often thought of Hitchcock's work and the Shepard crime as being part of their DNA, a braided filament that augured their fate. Um, So that's a quote within a quote. Mm -hmm. That's from the book, from within this article. Um, Early in the novel, Ross describes David's work in progress. David's work in progress in terms clearly meant to evoke Mr. Peanut. The structure was complex, perhaps overly so, but the story was impossible to tell straight. I'm not so sure. In the end, Ross may be a bit too much like the hero of his protagonist video game, a nice guy haunted by an impishly destructive doppelganger. The heart of this novel is the work of a writer with a strong natural talent who has chosen an old-fashioned subject and mastered an old-fashioned technique of bringing that subject to life. But the novel's self-congratulatory cleverness suggests the lurking presence of another kind of writer, one enthralled to a modish and ultimately vacuous gamesmanship. After reading Mr. Peanut, you very much hope that the former will be strong enough to prevail in the final confrontation with the latter. Wow. Um, and I have a, I have another uh, part in the book where like, I read it and like mentally bookmarked it 
And then I was reading this review and I was like, oh, yeah, that's exactly what I thought of that little paragraph. <laughs> so you're this is like within 20 pages at the end of the book. You're getting super close. OK. And I had noticed that sometimes David Pepin is referred to as David and sometimes he is referred to as Pepin. Hmm. And there's this little, you know, paragraph offset by indentations that says, alone now, Pepin wrote, there are two of us, of course, David and Pepin, interlocked and separate and one and the same. I'm writing my better self and he's having his worse and vice versa and so on until the end. A good reader, a good detective knows this by now. If you don't look in the mirror, that's you and not you after all, because the person in your mind isn't the person in the world. And if you don't know this already, you will. Whoa. That book, so it's like, like that passage so like, just so tried to make me stoned. So he's like reaching out from the pages of the book and being like, hey, are you a good reader? Did you notice this clever thing I was doing? I bet you did. You're so smart. Huh. <laughs> or you're not smart at all because you didn't notice it. <laughs> it. Well, that sounds like a Fight Club thing. As I was kind of reading about this book, it sounds, it sounds a little Fight Club-y, which my understanding is that the movie did a lot for that book. Um, just in I, terms I mean, of- I have I haven't read the book and I haven't I haven't seen the movie in a while. Um, it's not. I guess it's not unlike that in that like the twist was inside you all along. <laughs> <laughs> the peanut pretzel twist was inside you all along. Like here's the here's my deal with this book, and it's not that it's like the prose is often pretty good. Mm-hmm. The fact that it's all from like almost exclusively from male perspectives is occasionally uncomfortable because the book is like male gazy all over the place well, and i don't even it's... i don't even know if i have like i don't even know if we need to get into that explicitly it's just like there's another thing that made me feel things it seems like it's book. a yeah it seems like it's a byproduct of a bunch of men in relationships and other activities right and like all the men are all very troubled and all the women are all like ciphers who are impossible to read because women women be like this and men be like this yeah okay (laughs) byproduct of the structure of the book i think yeah as opposed to like willful dudeitude yeah i can i can definitely see that (laughs) okay (laughs) it's my favorite energy drink (laughs) but like just for, so for me personally as a reader and I'm not saying there's nothing there's I'm not saying there's no value in this book and I'm not saying that like the clever structural stuff that he's doing even though I personally find it too clever is like totally valueless mm-hmm. but like just as a reader I just I roll my eyes a lot at that kind of stuff and it makes me just enjoy the book less like this is the kind of book that I just don't like that much okay and because you, is it because you can kind of feel the author working? Yeah, it's okay. it's the it's the visible effort. And I'm not trying to say that like effort is bad. Like there is a I love when people take stuff seriously and put a lot of effort into stuff. It's just like <laughs> it's it's less impressive when like I so like let's go back to Hamilton, which we talked to a lot like that musical smacks of effort. There is a lot of yeah. effort poured into like every theme of that show but there's also there are also there also aren't a lot of times when lin-manuel when lin-manuel miranda steps out of it 
and says, look how hard I'm working. Like you. Well, and you've know... seen it. So you know that to be true. You know, right. that in the in the final stage production, he's not just sitting there whenever Hamilton's not in the scene going. He doesn't. <laughs> he's not just like standing off to the side when every other character's on stage and like raising his eyebrows at you being like, eh, 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 did you hear what I did? No, okay. he's like, he trusts you to, he trusts the attentive reader or or listener to mm-hmm. notice that stuff um possibly through like repeated listens or whatever so there's no there's no paragraph where he steps out of his musical and says you know the attentive listener will have noticed this theme by now certainly and certainly. it's just i don't like trust the reader or don't like do your convoluted thing and hope that people get it or like or live with them not getting it. Like, just don't. Yeah, yeah. Don't pull me out of it by, by like making sure I'm following along. I know there's like there's a lot of temptation to do that. I, I'm not. I don't do like a lot of fiction or anything outside of my like my D and D campaign. But I do like. I think if you have ever run a game of that before, like there is that temptation to like do this tightly structured thing and then to poke your players along and make sure that they do what you want them to do but that's like that's not that fun for anybody well i think that's it's kind of analogous to my experience reading this book yeah there's a couple of things that strike me in that it's he's weaving together a a bunch of different inspirations right like very specific ones like hitchcock as we Mm -hmm. said earlier and escher which just seems Mm -hmm. to be tied into the mobius strip idea right and the real life story of sam shepherd and this anecdote from his family, like some writers are, as they try to weave all of that together, it the seams never get smooth. Like you have too many different ingredients and you can, you have to kind of point them out if they're to work together at all. Yeah. And that's kind of why I brought up the thing about this feeling like a lot of short stories. Like I think the, the uh, Hastral Hannah story Mm-hmm hangs pretty well on its own. I think the shepherd story hangs really well on its own. Um because, you know, he does do a good job like fleshing it. Like Marilyn, the yeah. the wife of uh-huh. Sam Shepherd, like I don't know that we know a lot about her as a person in real life. Yeah, and like Shepherd like has been dead for decades, but Ross brings both of those people to life and gives them like very realistic and believable motivations for like doing the stuff that they do cool and he even like comes up with a with a good like uh an actual killer for Marilyn who is not shepherd who they like believable motivation yeah and it's like thematically woven into to everything and, it, and it's pulled off very well interesting um but when you mix all that stuff together, like the Hannah Hastral thing just feels like a loose thread and it's in there and it's connected by like, you know, here's a marriage that has problems, but otherwise like you could just snip it entirely out of the story and you would not lose anything hardly at all. Yeah. So there's Um, two, there's two quotes from a Q and a on Ross's website that seem relevant here. Uh, I noted them both based on some of the conversations we were having earlier about this book. Uh, He said, as the novel progresses, the reader should feel a more intense oscillation between the parts and the whole. I was just like, "Mm, okay. Sure. I'm sure I've said something that sounded like that. And maybe it seems a little like, okay. But then later he, 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But then later he says, my hope is that the readers experience a series of recognitions that they read about each marriage and say, yes, I've been there. Like that feels like a confident, assured writer who's going to tell you a couple different stories about a couple different characters and just trust that you see your own humanity in them and are moved or enlightened or surprised. Whereas the first is like, I am a crazy game master, like putting things together and I hope you get it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and and it's, it's interesting that the, that the review you cited kind of talks about the two authors. And of course he's like leaning into what Ross has already put into the book as a device, yeah. which is a very smart review. Mm-hmm. Um, also very clever, clever, yes, clever right. people, clever dudes. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that seems really accurate. And Ross seems to like purposefully know that he's up to two or three different things for better, or for worse. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I just, I, what I wanted to ask is like how you, react to stuff like that like my the books that i like to read one have a little more a sense of humor than this and i go back again to disgruntled by Sally solomon that we read yeah, a few yeah. weeks ago because i think what was the book i read more recently that was also pretty humorless oh uh when women were were birds yeah 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 and um again not that not that there was no humor in that book and not that there's no humor in this book but it's like not it's just not part of how the story is told. Like it's not essential to the book's yes. um, DNA, yes. I guess, for the for the lack of a better word. Get it um, like a Mobius strip? Good work. You're uh-huh. clever. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I know. I'm I'm really that was totally intentional. <laughs> I don't know. Like it's just, this is not the kind of book I like to read, which is not to say that it's a bad book. And that's like a lot part of, of why we when, do the show, right? A lot of the time when we get people who like compliment us on the show or who write itunes reviews or something they say that we do book reviews yes which is not a thing we set out to do no and it's it's not a thing that we don't ever do but it's also like (laughs) it's just yeah it's not like the point like this is me like this is not me saying this is my review of this book and this is a bad book it's just me saying me as a reader and you guys like who have gotten to know Craig and I as readers over like 170 something stupid episodes. What? Um, like this does not resonate with me. Sure. And I sure. wanted to, I just wanted to talk to you about like, how do you feel when you encounter stuff like this? How do you, I don't know. How do you, how do and the, and the other thing is like, I feel like this demands a second read for me to even appreciate all the stuff that he was doing the whole time, mm, which is not something we typically leave ourselves time to do. Yeah. That's one thing, but that's the first thing I thought of is the like retroactive sixth sense. Did you catch all the red stuff? Did you catch all the parts where Bruce Willis was like clearly a ghost? Like mm-hmm. <laughs> that, all that stuff, you certainly aren't meant to appreciate the first time through. And if it really lands, you immediately turn back to page one and start going like, what? Right. Like, what is that? Um, and there's stuff in other, f- not even necessarily in books, but I remember we were both, you know, we're both huge fans of this, of the show Breaking Bad. We referenced it earlier. And there are elements of that show that have the, of this, like, I'm very clever for weaving all of this together. Uh, can't you tell how clever I am? And for some reason, it doesn't bother me as much with that yeah because there's uh, to your to your critique earlier there's more humanity in the characters at like at play 
Uh, well, and, and also like the when he is doing like every, that show, it stands really well, like episodically too. Yes, like all sure. the episodes have stuff like specific things that they set out to do, and they are all part of a wider arc. But it's also not just this one big formless mass of of story. Yeah. Um, I think that the shorter stories that Breaking Bad is telling, like that stuff, is all there. Mm-hmm. But you're also just so caught up in being entertained by the the like the front and center story that's being told that you don't get annoyed that he's like shoving this. Like, here's this thematically important element stuff in your face. <laughs> that's true. Like, very r- rarely do you roll your eyes at something that Breaking Bad does. No, and, and that's perhaps an unfair comparison. Um, but when you were talking earlier about kind of weaving together disparate uh, inspirations and even modes of storytelling, I was reminded of David Foster Wallace, who's an author I really like. And I'm actually... my pet project for some point in the show is to get you to talk about infinite jest on air because i'm fascinated by how you will handle that book because if we can make it happen for episode 200 and if we can record like a two-hour spectacular or something like maybe that'll work i think no i think that would be the way to go about it Um, yeah because he is writing in so many different styles in that book he's dealing with so many different characters there's a winking humor to it Wallace always writes because, like, he knows the readers, like, right there next to him as he's writing. I think that actually serves his style very well. But there's also a real deep empathy for even the worst characters in that book that I think helps me along as I'm like, why are you doing it this way? Why are you doing it that way? What, what do you even... T- I don't... You just dropped 15 words I don't understand. And I, if I take the time to go look them up, I will forget everything that just happened. Like, I mm-hmm. can't hang with you, dude. But the <laughs> characters are so interesting that it kind of pulls you along. And his references are maybe maybe perhaps by loading it with more references than you necessarily could ever process, uh, you learn to just kind of drown them out and move forward. Whereas they don't all feel like the most important choice at any given moment. Um, and that might be like... Rather than taking three or four things and trying to hang your book on how you weave them together, just like dropping in 150 different things and just saying like, go for it, have fun, like a ball yeah, pit. Right. Like that might be uh, a little more successful for me. I was also thinking about books that uh, are clever and not as humorous as other overtly clever books. And I was reminded of Across 100 Mountains, which I read last, wow, last June? No way. I don't even know what happens to time. Like, how is, how is, oh man, how have we been doing this show for anywhere near as long as we've Whoa. been doing it? Uh, that was a book about a woman, uh, who, uh, came up to the United States from Mexico. It was about a, it was a border crossing story and like an identity change story. And I was kind of blown away by the twist at the end of that book. Like, I really liked the twist, uh, of who, she was and and what what the story was doing as it crisscrossed but it was not a particularly humorous book it was pretty mm-hmm. serious uh sure. but maybe for me it, it really is it just comes down to the characters and if i can if i can hang my hat on them i will not mind overt cleverness if it feels like it's supporting the themes of the book and it sounds like the shepherd stuff does that pretty well but the the David story did not necessarily do it for you. Yeah, and I I think the New Yorker review really gets to the heart of that is just like the characters that 
that um that Ross has invented just don't they don't shine like there's just nothing there's nothing to them but their problems with each other and that's like huh that's another thing that I kind of remarked upon I like I was I was talking to Susanna about like trying to figure out what I was feeling about the book as I was reading it and I like it's one of those books that assumes that the only interesting stuff that can happen to people is like bad stuff. Ah, uh, yeah, okay. You know what I mean? Like there's Yeah. Like it tries to make characters interesting just by giving them lots of like misfortunes and like dark terrible pasts and stuff. So like the miscarriage stuff, like I not to downplay like what an awful experience that is for everybody involved because of course it is, but like when you use it in a work of fiction, it can feel like a shortcut to mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to like some kind of empathy or something that you may not have necessarily earned. Well, he also spoke about the period with him and his wife, bef- you know, uh, where they were married for a long period of time uh, before having kids and kind of uh, doing a lot of different career things, et cetera, et cetera. And he likened it to the period in this book as this kind of like marital purgatory where your like classic milestones just aren't happening. So like what is new? And I think like you don't necessarily need to have that tragedy that you're talking about to motivate these characters into what happens in the rest of this book. I think Mm -hmm. you could almost have a bunch of little moments of like good things or just things that happen that shine a light on people that would tell you a lot about their relationship. I don't know. Yeah. And it's and it's not that there's so so um one of the things that Ross says is that like how hard middles are. So like if you're trying to lose weight, like it's easy to start and it's great to be done, but like the part in the middle sucks. Like huh. when you're writing when you're writing a book, it, you know, the middle part can suck. And then like when you're in a marriage or in a relationship or something, like you know, you just got married i did which is i mean it's not the conclusion of a of a relationship by any stretch but it's like when you are i guess in our society when you're starting a relationship with somebody like that's a logical end point yes that it is, is that you that one works to but then once you've done that for like 10 years or whatever and even you know even throwing like parenthood and other stuff in there like just once that relationship has been humming along for a while you know, either through like inattentiveness or just like habit or whatever, like it can, you know, stuff can get hard in there mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you don't even need any like specific thing to have happened to make it hard. It's just like, yeah, I'm thinking of making a map, like a timeline of uh, new recipes that I'm going to try out every five mm-hmm. years. Okay. <laughs> and like spectacularly fail at and like, it'll be a cool story like every five years. Just to make sure there's something new happening. Okay, great. Like, remember that time 10 years ago when you made those awful cookies? Great job. Yeah, good job. Good job with those cookies. You reinvigorated this marriage with your (laughs) terrible cooking. I didn't say it was a good plan. I've only been married for two days. I'll think of a better one. Yeah, no, you'll get the hang of it, buddy. I believe in you. (laughs) I did want to talk to you about how this, as we kind of wrap up, uh, I want to talk to you about how this book portrays video games. It's a thing that you and I, oh, yeah. <laughs> a common interest that we share. <laughs> and one of my favorite things just about the world, and it's a, it's an innate flaw in video games, which are this, oh, like it's this interactive thing that you have with a computer 
uh, that sounds really sexual. It's not. Um, and like maybe other people are playing with you again. I oh boy, I'm in the just weeds. Keep, just keep on. Uh, doing that. And it's a hard thing going. to to share with an observant like an audience. Like it's a it's a hard thing to relay as an experience. So I love when like commercials have people like playing with controllers and they're like freaking out. Like oh, I'm driving a car and people. Nobody does that. Like yeah, it's right. Not or how like all getting up and cheering when something cool happens. Like no, that's not how this works. It's not really how it works. So and, like, what is this? What is the relationship? of video games to this book and does it do it good or is it just kind of silly david pepin is a video game designer who is really famous at video games <laughs> and one of his you know thematically it ties into the book because one of his video games is about like escher oh okay cool um but the way that ross writes about it makes me feel like he's only read about video games okay and that he's not like very close to the subject matter at all sure um, like, so David and like this, this woman he has an affair with who works at his video game studio are out at lunch and they're talking about something. And she says that she saw him at the electronic entertainment expo. Yeah. And that was a huge red flag for me because like two people who work in video games are not going to say electronic entertainment expo. It's called E3 and everyone in the business is going to call it E3. Like, I don't know if he was just trying to make it more understandable for, like, a general audience or if he just, like, if he looked up on Wikipedia, like, where would two people who worked in video games have met each other before? Okay. <laughs> it's just, like, it's a giveaway. And, like, any time he tries to like, describe a thing that would, like, happen in a video game, it sounds like something that wouldn't, just wouldn't work. Okay. Do we um, ever, like, go inside of, do we ever Tron in this book? No. Oh, no, I was hoping there would be some sort of like Tron it's like moment. part of his character, but I think and and going back again to the thing about about David and Alice in particular just not being sketched in very well, I feel like maybe the character would have benefited a little more from from like working in a field where Ross had a little bit more experience to just okay. make it feel a little bit more real. Is it really just like a a way to further? the theme of interconnectedness and like the Mobius Escher stuff, or is it about like David being a controlling like game master? I think it's more the first thing. Okay. All right. That's fine. To the, to the extent that it's anything. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Is there anything else we didn't cover? I don't think so. Like, if anybody has read this book and wants to, like, talk with me about it or argue with me about it, I'd like to hear about it. Because, like I like I said, you know, this book didn't resonate with me, but that doesn't mean that it's bad and it doesn't even mean that it's necessarily unsuccessful. Like, there's just a lot of – there's a lot of – there's some good stuff in here, but just the whole did not work for me. Mm. Is there – as the more married one on this podcast? I ha- I am more married than you. Uh, was there anything in the marriages depicted that kind of resonated with you or like, oh, I've felt that or I could imagine how someone would like how that would go down? I know we're dealing with some pretty complicated marriages in this book. And so I don't mean to apply that. I just No, no, it's just, I do something I try to think about all the time is like I just I try not to get to autopilot about anything. So like I do this podcast. I do the appointment TV podcast. I do the D&D thing and like these are all sort of extracurricular activities to your life 
that I do to like hang out with people who I like, who are not like near me physically Mm -hmm. and I enjoy it and I have fun with it. But like, I also like, I try to treat my time with Susanna, like not just a thing that will happen when I'm not doing other stuff, but like a thing that I actively make time for yes and think yes. about and and work on like it's it's about and again i haven't been like married for as long as any of the people in this book have been married but it's about just like not taking stuff for granted which sounds like a cliche but that's you know that's that's what it is I hey think. man it's a cliche but there's some truth in cliches yeah and that in itself is a cliche that's, and it's cliches oh, all the way down whoa <laughs> okay mc cliche sure let's go oh, uh so if you uh, disagree with Andrew about this book or you agree with him wholeheartedly, uh, you can email us at overduepod at gmail.com. You can write on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash overduepod or tweet at us at twitter.com slash overduepod. Uh, we were away for a week and we want to thank the two bossy dames, Margaret and Sophie, for uh, holding down the fort last week. If you haven't gone and listened to Flowers in the Attic, it's a great episode. Uh, so we want to thank them for that. And it also got a lot of responses from people. So I'm going to read a very long list. Um, Andrew, take a deep breath and hang out. Uh, see if you can hold your breath for as long as I'm going to read this list. Okay. Oh, boy. All right. All right. You tell me when you're ready. Remember that time when Andrew died on the <laughs> podcast? Okay. <gasps> Melissa, Virginia, Morgan, Daniel, Albie, Michael, Lynn, Philip, Trisha, Robin, Susan, Laura, Ellen, Laura, Pete, Taylor, Daisy, Bookman, Sean, Josh, Rachel, Diana, Catherine, Catherine, Margaret, Sophie, Rachel, Erica, Ashley, Mary, Jamie, Steph, Nandita, Holly, Lynn, Eric, James, the two black hotties, the K-Files, Stuffed, Kara, Renata, and Meredith, who recommended this book. Boom. Did you recommend this book? Uh, Yeah, Meredith. Oh, no, no, not, not this book. Uh, Flowers, Flowers in, the in the Attic. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so thanks for that. Also, Nicole, uh, Magali, Catherine, and Tessa also sent us some great emails this week. Thanks for that. Nicole even mentioned To Be or Not to Be, which is the Choose Your Own Adventure Hamlet that I imagine. Yeah, I, I got we'll that feedback to. from somebody else. I don't, man, I wish I remember who I was talking to, but they wanted us to do some Choose Your Own Adventure stuff from other like lines like spin off so like give yourself goosebumps Ooh, or yeah. like to be or not to be. So I think, I think we need to take that suggestion very seriously okay we certainly will andrew uh if people wanted to find those choose your own adventure books or other episodes that we've done where should they go uh then go to overduepodcast.com which is our internet website aol keyword overdue <laughs> you can find uh links up there to our rss stitcher and itunes feeds those are all the things you can use to subscribe to the show if you subscribe on itunes do leave us ratings and reviews tons of you have been doing that lately and we just we appreciate it so much um you can find a link to spreaker our podcast host headgum our podcast network uh amazon links to the books that we have read and are going to read so if you want to read along you can click those and support the show if you want to support us in kind of an ongoing fashion there is a patreon you can find that on our site or at patreon.com slash overdue pod um and if you donate five dollars a month or more uh you can recommend a book to us and we'll get it bumped to the top of the queue we've been we've been a little slower on that lately than historically we have been just because of all the the wedding madness but i'm hopefully like in the hopefully in the next couple weeks like things will even out and we'll be able to um be a little more proactive about doing that again Mm -hmm. um so thank you to everybody who's supporting the show uh via patreon um anything else craig no i'm i'm working on lay miz for next week so let's do that yeah Uh, that's a patreon it'll happen uh that's a patreon recommendation and i just want to 
say I love you to my wife, Laura, who I got married to. Aww. And that was really fun. Love you too, Susanna. Woo. Woo. Actually, if you if you guys want to know more about our wives, uh, this month's bonus episode, I think I, I, we can talk about it now, is um, they... Uh, my Susanna read Eat, Pray, Love by Elizabeth Gilbert, and then uh-huh. they talked about it, and I'm like halfway through editing it now, and I think the people are going to enjoy that. So that's this month's bonus episode. It should she'll go up for patrons sometime this week, and uh, for everybody else sometime the week after. So cool. look forward to that. I think that's and, it, Andrew. Uh, yeah, until next week, everyone. Thank you for listening. I'm sorry for the delay this week in posting, but we sh- it should be back to normal by next week. And until then... Try to be happy. That was a headgum podcast.